Declan is now taking a bottle of pure vodka from a shelf and pouring himself half a pint. He knocks it back in one and then sits down with a contented expression in his bladder. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Hello, my name is Daklin Deneen, welcome to Checkpoints. This is a show about video games, the people who play them and the people who make them. Each episode, a guest on the show talks about the games that have shaped their life in one way or another. Games that have inspired them, games that have forged connections, and games that have soothed wounds. I am I'm very excited about today's show, um, and it requires a little bit of backstory. So last year, um, episode six to be precise, uh, my guest was Ian Cook, who is one third of the the popular musical combo Churches. Uh, It's a very good chat. I recommend you listen to it. Uh, And Ian, when talking about the sort of games that he remembers from his youth and the games that first made him fall in love with games, uh, mentioned Pymania. Uh, And me, you know... This is going to, you know, hurt my cred. I mean, if you listen to the show for a while, you know this, but I never owned a a Spectrum, so I had absolutely no idea what what Pymania was. My my first video game machine was a a Sega Master System. So Ian then went on to to describe the the Pie Man to me, and and I genuinely couldn't believe it. I thought he was making up. You can honestly, like, go back and listen to the episode. You can hear the moment of me just completely not believing that this this thing was a character in video games so much so that you know it's even i put it in the show notes of the the show because i was so like amazed and i I found this character uh, hysterical um now shortly after that episode aired a friend of mine dave steer uh, got so angry that i didn't know about pymania and specifically its creator uh, mel croucher that he sent me a copy of mel's book in the post is my education in video games. And it was only after I'd, I'd finished reading the book that I realized what made Dave so angry and so evangelical. Mel Croucher is amazing. Like, okay, like for starters, he founded the UK video game scene. His company, Automata, was the very first UK video game company. And they first distributed games over the radio um, I'm, I'm not going to spoil too much, but like he crammed so much stuff in his life. And I think one of the things that, that makes people so env- evangelical and, and made me so excited to be able to record this episode after learning about his life is, you know, I'm, I'm a big time video game nerd. I host a podcast about video games and I didn't know who Mal Croucher was. And I think most people probably don't. He's kind of this forgotten figure in video games, but he, he did so much and he was so ahead of his time. You know, he was the first video game auteur you know um i think you're gonna dig it i think it's, it's a it's a brilliant episode as always thanks so much for uh, downloading listening to the show it's always hugely appreciated as is sharing it around i think it, i think if any episode were appropriate to be shared this is the the, the, the one um so please tweet about it tell your friends facebook messages etc in fact i'm pretty certain that 
on whatever device you're listening to this on, there's literally a button on the app that you're using to share this. Literally just one button press. Um, and that would be amazing. That would really be massively appreciated. You know, I mean, I'm, I'm a fan of, of video games. You know, I want to get the highest score possible. So I want to try and reach as many people as I can. And, and I think it's a, it's a re- really good show. And so if you do like it, a share is... Um, is a wonderful way to to help and is always hugely appreciated um before we start i just want to say well continue get to the main event you may already have skipped this part um just want to say thanks to dave for sending me the book introducing me to mel kreitcher um, and now hopefully i will be introducing him to some of you let's get on with the show For the sake of um, formalities, I'll, I'll do. A, I can edit this later, but we'll put in just okay. a formal introduction. So, now all right, you're going to edit this, are you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's Zip definitely going to uh, stay in now, though. Zip um, up my electric blue, blue <laughs> backless gown here. Um, okay. So, Mel, thanks so much for for coming on the show. If you don't mind, would you introduce yourself? <laughs> well. Hello there, Hello. boys and girls in Radioland. <laughs> My name is Mel, Mel Croucher. Um, uh, legend and rumour has it that I founded the UK computer games industry. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but uh, I was sort of around at the beginning and uh, failed to die, which is why Declan is now talking to me. <laughs> But see, this is this is what's interesting because usually with these shows, like it's basically I'm I'm trying to chart people's life in games. You know how how games have affected their life, and the question I always start with is, what was your your first experience of of a computer game? But oh, wow, you you were clearly <laughs> you didn't have one. You invented the first experience well, of a, they, a computer there game. There weren't any. Well, actually, that's not quite true. Um, I suppose it was in the 1950s. 1940s, 1950s. I would have been about seven years old. In fact, I was exactly seven years old. And my mum and dad bought me um, this shitty little tin xylophone, which was one of the best presents I'd ever had. It was called a sooty xylophone. And uh, it had a book of programs with it. And the programs consisted of colored dots. And they corresponded with the eight keys of this shitty tin xylophone and it also came with a little stick one wooden stick because sooty was a, he was a little glove puppet and he could only hold one wooden stick yeah so the idea was that you follow the notes on the program and bashed in accordance well this was extremely boring and by uh, by about the first hour of being extremely bored by this i realized i discovered that you could you could take the keys off and re- rearrange them <laughs> and write your own colored dots. And not only that, you could um, <laughs> you could make your own keys. You could just get bits of tin and uh, have many length you want. So uh, using the same mechanism of, of bashing it with this stick and following the colored dots, uh, I s- sort of wrote my own, um, my own little songs. Uh, not originals, they were all nursery rhymes, I suppose, at the time. But uh, we had a we had an old machine called um, a pianola, which was um, like a, a Victorian iPod. 
Like you get in westerns and stuff in in old silly yeah, ones exactly that your piano so. playing in the corner. And you you pedaled it with a, a pair of uh, foot pedals, and it worked these bellows, and a big drum thing, and from eight notes of my sooty xylophone, I was suddenly up to eighty-eight notes of this this beautiful piano. It was called an Aeolian piano, the the, the manufacturer, very old, and. Um, it ran on these, uh, the, the program for that was um, like a big roll of wallpaper with holes in it. And if there were no holes, then nothing played. But if a hole passed over these bellowy thingies, it triggered a key to play a note. And again, um, the notes that came with it that I inherited uh, were very boring. But I nicked a, a roll of, new, of, of wallpaper and cut it to size and discovered that it was very, very easy to program this 88 key machine. Um, That's quite a thing to have in your house. Like, where on earth would, would that come into your life? Or yeah, your parents, obviously. I, I, do you know, a bit, good question. It, it, it was, um, I grew up in a very, like a, a two up, two down, um, we used to call them slums before they were knocked down, I suppose in um, this what was a bombed out city of, of Portsmouth at the time um, just after the war and there was this woman down the road who I presume she died and uh, I used to love all things musical so it, it was trundled along the road and <laughs> went into our, like this back shed area that we had uh, well I suppose these days people have bathrooms and toilets yeah but, um, well, we had an outside one of those, but we had this uh, this this machine. That sounds much dad, more fun. It, it, my dad worked in the dockyard, and um, he had these tools that he had access to. One of which was um, like a you know those hole punch things that you yeah yeah for belts with you know, leather and shoes and stuff. Well, he had one that was square, uh, which was the exact size of the holes that ran this uh, old player piano. So I borrowed that and um, drew up a grid, uh, which took ages, you know, with a ruler and a, and a pencil, and worked out a matrix and started punching holes and made a practical fucking, sequencing, basically. Fucking awful noise. It was terrible, yeah. <laughs> I, I, my mother used to swear at me in German, uh, mostly because she was German. <laughs> <laughs> Not was, just an it affectation. A, it wasn't an affectation. No, no. <laughs> I spent my, half my childhood in the bombed-out ruins of Portsmouth and the other half in the bombed-out ruins of Berlin. It was a sort of tip, <laughs> a tip for tat childhood, you know? But see, I mean, that sort of thing, like, you know, I could easily imagine some, some kids uh, stumbling on one of those old pianolas and making, like, even just recently, actually, there was a, a YouTube video that went viral of... Uh, a guy who basically built his own machine that uh, basically a pianola, but it was played by yeah. dropping yeah. balls and, and hitting yeah, great, great. and it was brilliant. Like this, sort of, that sort of practical um, playfulness is 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 uh, making a bit of a comeback. Back, I think. Yeah, to yeah, totally. Benjamin Franklin and his his glass harmonica, where he 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 did it all himself. He just made this thing which didn't exist before. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah, no, it's uh, this is amazing. So, but but that I mean that's obvious. I mean, in retrospect, obviously, that, that is clearly a, a type of programming, but you it, it wouldn't have thought about that program. at the time, though. Well, this takes us back to um, when I was a student, 
and uh, by now we're in the 60s, early 60s. And for some reason, I was studying architecture. And I became an architect eventually, but I'm better now. <laughs> I, I got over it. But while I was studying, the Navy had this huge, great computer, which took the entire top floor of a building, uh, quite near to where I'm sitting now, actually. Um, and for some reason, I, I don't know how I talked my way into the, um, onto the course, but I used to fancy the lecturer something rotten. <laughs> and uh, dear Miss Crunt. That's an unfortunate the, name. Well, her name was Franny. So Franny Crunt. Crunt. That sounds no, like no, something no. out of this. <laughs> her name wasn't Fanny Crunt. Her name was Franny. Right. So we called her. Miss Crunt. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Joke. That's yeah. that's cleverer than, than I was uh, giving it credit for. Okay, but she she used to wear this white coat, and the lipstick of a courtesan. I was only a young lad, but Christ, I fancied her. So um, I, I got myself onto the course. I don't know. I, I suppose I applied and was was accepted somehow, while doing architecture, and she was teaching rudimentary programming using this huge machine owned by um, the Navy. Uh, sorry, the Ministry of Defense, the Ministry of Defense. And uh, you could walk around inside it and the, the, the valves, you know, all glowy and stuff. And to program this machine, we used punch cards. Do you see where I'm going? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So it you do. Was, yeah. So before we even started, I knew exactly what this machine was for. It was to play music. So uh, it probably took one or two terms, probably about six months. And I got this thing to play um, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, uh, synchronized to, <laughs> to a load of flashing lights. <laughs> <laughs> At which point I got thrown out the course. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. This is so, clearly a machine for serious business. And that not, was uh, my, not Twinkle, that was Twinkle, Little Star. Class. First real programming, uh, trying to trying to make a computer. Um, that's that's amazing. So you you clearly <laughs> didn't pursue that that course. Then you you went on to do your I, architecture. I, I was doing it. I did it at the same time as architecture. We could, you, it was very free back then. Um, this would have been around oh, I don't know the summer of love and the summer of revolution sixty six to sixty eight, and we were you know obviously. We were, doing what students do, which was uh, sex and drugs and rock and roll, occupying um, our facilities, going on strike, demonstrating, ending the war in Vietnam, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Just what you do as a student. I, I feel so sorry for today's students. Oh, they do much the same, but they just there's a lot uh, more anxiety involved, I think. Idle bastards. They just <laughs> they don't know anything. Well, I but that, 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 I, mean, that, I find that interesting because, like, I mean, that kind of the that image of the the '60s and you know the the counterculture. It's all, you know, it's, it's been romanticized a lot and stuff. But I'm sure a lot of it is is accurate as well. But the, it was pretty is... mainstream. I'm not, I don't know about countercountry. It was it was it was. Um, I mean, it was it was all around. But just the, the the idea of it was that there was this sort of cultural revolution. But nowhere in in that kind of narrative does anyone talk about computers and and like and these kind of early prototypical things i suppose because 
mm. nobody was allowed to use them. Maybe, maybe. It's, it's debatable, isn't it, really? I mean, as soon as I got my hands on uh, proper computers, which would be what... 77 they they were starting to come out it's the first kind of home computer stuff yeah yeah say 77 uh I, at that time i was um i, I was qualified but uh i don't know you do all the usual things like you know you're in rock and roll bands and i was producing some um radio programs uh when the first computers came out not because um I was qualified to do so, but because my sister was reading the news <laughs> at the station, and the head of the station at the time was a guy I went to school with. It's nice so, to see that nepotism never changes. It's absolutely, absolutely. Nepotism uh, all the way. So th somehow they let me have a late night slot. And I persuaded the guy, his name is Paul Brown, Paul Brown OBE, probably Sir Paul Brown by now. Anyway, <laughs> Paul Brown of the lower sixth. And he played my father in the school play, I think. That's, he was only a couple of years older than me. But he was... Why was your dad in the school play? He, no, 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 sorry. He played my father, this guy. Oh, like ran, the, the character, the not, not literally character. your father. Yeah. My father, near as he ever got to a stage, was... Um, uh, down the pub, getting up and singing bawdy songs. <laughs> so that, that was about it. Um, anyway, after I um, got myself inveigled into this radio station, Radio Victory 257. Was that the same sort of area as well? Was that like the South Coast? Uh, yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, yeah. Um, they let me have this radio program and I got them to allow me to broadcast um, computer programs over the air that's amazing it's not amazing it was inevitable because when I started making my own uh, computer programs and little quizzes and stuff using late 1970s machines at home um, there was no way to get your computer software, which was sort of entertainment, little quizzes and little tunes and silly stuff. Um, on God, less than 1K, certainly less than 1K of memory. And what sort of computers? Is this like a... Uh, pets and... Oh, okay, pets. Stuff knocking around. Uh, my, my wife was a, a teacher, and I think the first computer I ever saw was a place called um, South Downs College, and this metal thing came, this sharp metal thing came in with a tiny little screen, tiny little thing. Um, looked like uh, the head of Darth Vader. And it was sharp. <laughs> in fact, it was just like this sooty xylophone. It was sharp metal. Um, I can't remember how it was programmed. I just can't remember if it was print. It was, it was tape, I think. I think it was reels of cassette. Yeah, it probably would have been, especially if you, if you were able to broadcast the, the tones yeah. of it and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we got no uh, listeners, so we started offering crummy little prizes. And you listened to the broadcast in the, late at night. <laughs> you taped it. <laughs> you played the tape to your computer. Up came a line of questions. You are, you know, where is the Mary Rose or something? I don't know. <laughs> but that's like, and I mean. Then you phoned up the radio station. 
to claim a prize. <laughs> I mean, that does sound absurd, but it does it sound is absurd. It is amazing as well, though. Like you, you, like I, I don't. I've never experienced anything like that. The idea that you can, for some reason, that seems more amazing than the internet and Wi-Fi. The fact that you could um, somebody had play to some do. notes on the radio and then that could turn into something on your screen that seems somehow more magical i don't know why it, it was extremely magical extremely frustrating um and it was inevitable because i had nowhere to advertise my computer software my games or i did little you know alphabets the russian alphabet um uh, loads of alphabets and i would sell i don't know 30 different alphabets uh, for for a quid but where do you sell them i mean there were no computer clubs you had to go along and find uh it was like you know somerset's newspapers were printed out on ronio machines hand crank machines for enthusiasts but i didn't know where these enthusiasts were right you know no shops there were no you know fairs or clubs there was nothing it was just just starting so i thought the radio was pretty obvious uh, I was producing um, a pub quiz on air, um, and I thought I'd, I'd, <laughs> I'd broadcast these things in the interval. <laughs> and I think, well, we, we got no, no responses at all for the first couple of broadcasts. Then we got three or four, ten, a dozen. And after the first season, I suppose we would, we might have had a, maybe a couple of hundred listeners that had access to computers and we were giving away these crappy little prizes and again i managed to get sponsored by a brewery it sounds like i'm making all this up this is, <laughs> it's all true it's it's in my book it must be true and um this it was whitbread brewery and their beer tasted like piss it was awful <laughs> horrible horrible soapy piss but not only was i <laughs> getting paid by the radio station to advertise my own software i was now getting paid by a brewery to sponsor this um this quiz thing once a week that's quite forward thinking by the brewery though it was either forward thinking or idiocy they didn't realize because the content what of the doing. show would just be like horrific noise Ah, uh, hang on. It was a pub quiz. So there's, there's real people doing a real pub quiz in a real pub. And then at the end of the show, there was this god-awful noise. Ah, okay, okay, okay. enthusiasts. You with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that was like a, a bonus so, feature, basically. That's right. It was a, a for real radio show with the quiz tacked on. Um, and I know I... I, I, I I was used by then to having little jokes in, you know, sound effects and little stories and little songs. Uh, I've already mentioned that I'd been in, in like, we had to be in a band by law in the <laughs> 1960s. You had to. And I used to run a little blues club and only, only so I could play it. <laughs> I could play myself, you know, because nobody would ever, ever book me to, to, to play. Why, uh, what did you play? What was your instrument? I, uh, guitars and keyboards and anything really i i, I was one of those precocious brats you, you give me a musical instrument and i can play it very badly so like I, I don't what what 
<laughs> I'm struggling to come up with. I've got so many questions. Um, but the, the main one, I suppose, is like what motivated you to do that? Was it just a sense of playfulness? Because you can't have thought, oh, this is going to be a money-making scheme. I'm going to no, transmit noise I, over I, the radio. I wanted. I, I enjoyed playing music. Uh, I'd d- done some live stuff when I was living in Stockholm as a student. Uh, let's not even go in, into there, into that. But it was it was a great time. It was um, a lot of American, Vietnam um, uh, draft dodgers and deserters headed to Stockholm. It seemed like a good place to be in the, in the late '60s. Great music, and I used to play a lot of blues back then. So it was not difficult to. Um, I, I was called Blind Joe Deaf. <laughs> and um, I used to wear these dark glasses. I had long hair and stuff, as you would. I had a pair of dark glasses, and they used to leave, leave, leave me on stage, pretend I was blind. <laughs> <laughs> so I got the sympathy vote, you know, and um, <laughs> women would touch you and things like that. It was great. Um, and uh, anyway, I just I thought one way of getting my music out would be to, um, because, <laughs> because computer programs in the early days let's say all uh, there's a machine called the zx81 which um, came along in 1981 actually before that was a z80 which came along in 1980 and it used cassettes okay and i was producing loads of rubbishy games Um, and the reason was that on the on the other side of the cassette there was nothing which is blank tape and you could turn the cassette over so i would put little jokes on the back and audio tracks and bits of music and um by the time we got to when i formed a company allegedly the first software company in in britain which was called either automata or automata what well mine you started it so you you surely should have the the rights and the correct pronunciation i used to call it for a joke or tomato uh, because we had a slogan there's, there's no blood in our games it's or tomato sauce right <laughs> and uh, that was so yuck. we used to do um, we used to have these adverts on the back of a, a weekly magazine called Popular Computing Weekly right mm-hmm. and uh, normally they expect advertisers to pay for the privilege of having a full page weekly advert it's probably the biggest selling computer magazine of its time. Um, well, we didn't pay for it. Uh, they just used to let us do what we like, really, because we did cartoon strips. We advertised our own stuff. When I say we, this was Automata on the, the, early, the early days. Uh, we were only ever four or five people. Uh, we were always broke. Didn't understand business at all. I still don't. But There's so much of this just sounds like it was all just a lark. It was all just a lark. And, you know, it still is. <laughs> no, nothing has changed. I cannot take it seriously. Computers are stupid. Computer games are stupid. People that play computer games are stupid. It's all, it's crazy. It's, uh, where's the seriousness in, in watching little blobs dance around a screen and thinking they are meaningful? You know, it's, it's bonkers. Well, I mean, been a living. You 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 do say this, but then like the 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 game that you're probably best known for 
is very much or at least appears to be an attempt to do something more serious with that to, to not oh, yeah. be like not just be a bunch of silly stuff so you, you clearly spent a lot of time doing this and then you're you you wanted to use that that medium to say so, something important or at least attempt it of course but you still can't get away from the fact that they were little blobs dancing around on the screen. It's changed now. It's changed now. Okay? Uh, the, the, the screen resolution is, is so good. The sound is so good. Um, but back then, we were talking about literally little blobs, uh, and they were monochrome to start with. Uh, when it got to the color, first color machine, I suppose, was the Spectrum, first popular color machine. And there were programs around one called Daily Thompson's Decathlon or something. Daily Thompson was represented. Daily Thompson was a black athlete, right? Yep. He was, he was represented by a white blob. I mean, <laughs> come on. Come on, guys. You know? Oh, uh, social dude. justice warriors today would have a, have a field day with that kind of well, representation. Well, we did. That, that, that was a whole page piss take on the back of Popular Computer Weekly. <laughs> See, uh, if I wanted to infiltrate and force feed people my music i also wanted to corrupt the souls of britain's youth at the time for political ends uh, i am what used to be called a lefty and we were fighting on so many fronts back then uh, against um, I don't know, nuclear warheads trundling around our, our countryside um, miners on strike against the evil regime that tried to control us. There were, there were a lot of, of battles to be fought and some to be won. Not a lot, but some to be won. And so I would try and subvert as much as I could in the cartoons, in the computer games, in the music even. Uh, it was just, a, as Frank Zappa used to call it, a low-level war against apathy. That's all we were trying to do, all I was trying to do. I think the rest of the people in Automata, well, they thought I was crazy, of course. But they're all getting £25 a week. I mean, come on. That's <laughs> a lot of money. You know? So do you think then, like, I'm just trying to think, like, do you think you were drawn to, to, to games and computers because it was new and because it was there was still a lot of potential in it? Hmm. It just, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think by, like. By the time I got to computers as a business, which would, was, it was November the 19th, 1977. Uh, again, my birthday. I was celebrating City at the time on my little City xylophone. And by that time, uh, I was no spring chicken. I'd had several companies by then, uh, I'd been involved with radio. I, I was an architect, uh, but I, I wasn't a very good architect, and I didn't like being an architect. Uh, are I there buildings that you've built that arranged? Uh, there are, there are, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't admit to any of them there. Right. <laughs> Except for, the, I ended up in Dubai um, in the mid-70s. I was working for this, well, he was the ruler of Dubai. He was this sheikh, Sheikh Rashid Al Maktoum. I hope nobody listens to this. I'll probably get strung up. 
by jihadists or something. Um, he was <laughs> that a, was before he, Dubai was Dubai, though, really. That was, it was nothing. We, I broke the ground over there. We built the first high-rise buildings in Dubai. They were so tall, they were, let me get this right, nine stories tall. <laughs> before that, it was just ancient stuff and tents and some Nismans. Anyway, he was, a, he was an interesting man. He was what you would call, I suppose, a benign despot. Uh, it was only his cousin who was killed for him to become ruler. Okay, that's, that's fair enough. With, and I'm sure he had nothing to do with it, uh, Your Honor. The country was run by a load of expats. Um, I'm sure there might have been little missile bases and air bases near, nearby, but good for him. Um, he built hospitals. He built schools. Uh, he put in a TV station. And then he started playing because the money that was being coming out the ground, you, you couldn't. Firstly, you couldn't imagine it. And secondly, you couldn't possibly spend it. So what did he do? He put himself in an airport. And then in the next shake along the road, a place called Sharjah, which was probably all of 20 miles away. He put himself in an airport. So he had these <laughs> in Abu Dhabi, which would have been, oh, I don't know, 50 miles up the road. He built himself an airport. These were international airports being built. You didn't have time to take off from one and land in the other. <laughs> you couldn't even get high enough to, oh, God, it was crazy. And this guy, would, we'd go sitting, uh, they had a thing called the, the Marjolis, which is like get-together, where all these, uh, he's there, he, he's the slave driver, and we're all the slaves. We weren't slaves, we were slave labor. Uh, I couldn't get a job in, in Britain. It was, um, it was a recession on. The lights were out. I'll give you a bit of history here. We had a thing called the three-day week, and electricity was rationed. We had to work by candlelight. You can't do that as an architect. I mean, how the fuck can you design by candlelight? And it was like design anyway. The country was broke. So I got out to, to Dubai, uh, which was like the Wild West, the Wild Frontier. I was an economic migrant. And... He was, the sheikh was paying cash. Cash. Yeah. Cash Once for buildings. Uh, yeah, cash for everything. We got paid in cash. Uh, so that, that would have been, that would have funded was no your taxes, computer as hobbies recall. for a good couple of years. Yeah, I started, I started recording out there as well. I started making music out there because I could afford, a, you know, some gear for a change. But and, so, like, uh, for the... the I'm lost. I've lost myself. Where are we? No, sorry. Yeah, we went oh, off yeah. on the Oh, yeah. I was saying that uh, I'd already been in business yes, yes, before yes, computers sorry. sort of got into into the mainstream in UK. So I'd been an architect. I'd been a you know, musician, um, surveyor, all sorts of things. I worked in a fairground painting, um, you know, painting signs. I'd worked in, I lived in Spain for a year painting, uh, painting signs and designing a place called Benidorm, a little place called Benidorm, a little fishing village. <laughs> we started building pubs and go-kart tracks and stuff. It was amazing times to be young and uh, fancy-free. Absolutely. Anyway, so computers were an absolute natural to focus my design stuff, my music stuff, my subversion stuff, and try and make some money. And 
for a couple of years, I suppose we were the, the biggest software house in Britain, but only because we were about the only software house in Britain. I mean, we had a few number ones, but only because all the rest were number twos and so forth. So, so there wasn't any like there weren't games that you played, or there, there wasn't anything that you. This is this is what I find uh, amazing. Is that like it's not like it, yeah. The, 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 the cause and effect is, is really difficult because a lot of people, especially like people I've spoken to in designers and things, that they have games and you're inspired by certain things and you go off and do this. But there weren't any games. You were just like, right, there let's were, make there these were arcade games. games. So there, there was, you know, there was Pong and uh, and Space Invaders. That was about it, I suppose. But did, so lot, they didn't have any kind of profound uh, effect on uh, it. Hang on, I used to love going down to the fairground, which is why I ended up working there for uh, a season doing my painting. Uh, sign sign writing rather and i used to love it as a kid my dad used to um, take me down uh, penny and the slot machines and some penny and the shop machines you you had a little gun and you, you fired at these metal cats and they got knocked over and if you got enough you got your penny back hey good business eh <laughs> <laughs> and um all sorts of like arcade games and jokey games uh, so I transliterated, is that a word? A lot sure. of fairground games into uh, computer games, a lot. And then I started having uh, Flights of Fancy, I'm a Republican. So one of the early 1K games was we had the Prince of Wales sitting on, on the toilet and um, blocking it with his excrement. And... <laughs> This is in 1K, monochrome, yeah, blobs. Uh, the idea is to unblock uh, the toilet and you shot a jet of water down it. and it, it was ping pong. All games were ping pong or chess. Uh, that's it, isn't it? There are only, well, I think there are three games in the world. Uh, but back then it was mostly ping pong. Then a bit of chess came in um, and then a bit of dice came in. So... I always say this, I bore people to tears saying it. Even today, there are only three computer games in the world, or factors of computer games. There is ping pong, which is your hand-eye coordination. There is chess, which is your strategy. And there is dice, a bit of luck, a bit of randomness. That's all there is. Everything is a derivative of those three, two, uh, three factors. Uh, there are a few exceptions, but they really are exceptions. Even the, um, I, I, there's, there's good stuff around now. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not knocking computer games. There's great stuff around. But it's all derivative. It has to be. It's like the early days of the movies. Yeah. You know, it, was, it was only the first moving pictures that were innovative. It, it, it could not be any other way. They had to break the ground. They might have been crappy, but they were first. So my stuff might have been crappy, <laughs> but it was first. <laughs> so when you started um, Automata, I'm going to use your pronunciation of it, Mel. Okay. Since you started it. What, like, was it, how, how did you know you had done something good necessarily? Or not something good, but... Like hmm. I imagine the turnaround for those games would have been like really fast. So would it have been a case of 
oh this would be a funny idea like that thing with with prince charles that that's a, a kind of a joke and a jab at the monarchy there you go that's a game yeah Package it was up. exactly like that um well we had to be uh, there were after a few weeks a few months there was some competition knocking around some other companies were producing games so don't forget i've been in business before um i started if they were bringing out a game for a quid i would bring out 10 games for a quid or whatever the price was in those days uh i brought out a album called uh, video game album rather called um in the best possible taste which no one's ever heard of really really early one i think there was about 30 games on that and i can't remember if it was a pound or two pounds i just don't know they couldn't beat us on price then we started putting um, incentives in like prize games. Um, and How would people claim their prize? On the, in the radio games, they would phone up the radio station. In our first big game, which is something called Pymania, we hid a gold sundial with diamonds in it. Uh, for real. I mean, I, I went out and... <laughs> And got this thing commissioned and paid cash for it. Sorry, paid um, a check for it. And um, and you had to be at the right place at the right time to claim it. And I made sure that when we launched it, pi is 22 over 7, right? So yep. that's the answer. It's on the um, 22nd of the 7th was the date, uh, the place you had to play the game to find it. And it went ballistic. It went absolutely apes. People were forming clubs and having conventions to find out where this thing was. Then I started a story in the press saying it was a hoax, <laughs> <laughs> right? Which is great. So everyone sort of joined in saying, does this thing exist? Then we started taking it around on tour, the prize. But was the uh, intention to give it away or was it just like of course, whatever? Just of course it was to give it in. away. Of course it was. Um, we used to give away... The, a lot of stuff actually when we went to um this be wonderful early microfairs they weren't even called microfairs they were just gatherings of enthusiasts first a few dozen then a few hundred then it was thousands this was getting big you know uh they used to go to like the alexander palace the alley pally these wonderful things called microfairs hordes of people queuing mostly young people i you know they were kids which was weird because I thought my games were for adults. <laughs> you know, I had games called Vasectomy and um, uh, Love and Death, which is all, of, you know, instead of space invaders and shooting um, ray guns at, at, at spaceships, I was shooting sperms at, at you know, flying vaginas and stuff. <laughs> and there's, there's kids buying this. Um, you know, then I, I obviously I toned it all down as soon as I realized what my audience was. But that's when I knew it was big. I physically met these, we used to call them pie maniacs, and there was loads of them. That must have been that, thrilling, like, it was to go from, like, thrilling. almost nobody and not even sure if anyone was playing to suddenly thousands of people. It was astounding. Because it was quite and, quick as well, the, the growth. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was months. It was um, by, let's say, we, we finished doing the radio stuff in 1980, and by 81... Yeah, it had gone mainstream. Underground. By the time the Spectrum, the Commodore 64, and all that sort of 
stuff was at the BBC Micro. What are we in now? 82, 83? Yeah, I remember that sort of time. Yeah, 84. It was stupid. 85, I quit. <laughs> you know, it's just ridiculous. So we had the golden years, and they were the golden years. It was, it was just... It must have been like it when movies started or when recorded music first started. Imagine that. The first, imagine the first 78 rock and roll records coming out. I'd, I don't have to imagine it. I can remember it. You know? <laughs> and we used to have this wind-up gramophone in the street. And these um, guys who'd like, been to America would come over. Portsmouth was an interesting place. A lot of people uh, from the Navy you know, obviously would come back clasping these weird and wonderful um, large records, these big records called 78s. That's because they span at 78 revolutions per minute. A record is this disc thing. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. Right? <laughs> Fully and aware a, a rec- of records. A record player is a machine that you <laughs> play this thing here. And, and when I was a kid, you had to wind it up by hand, um, a bit like the old player piano. Still and not yeah, as magical as transmitting games over the yeah, radio. But... It was magic to us, and this noise would come out. Wow, you know, blues records and Elvis and stuff. Remember the? Oh, I used to listen to small blues music that these 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 guys had brought over. Fantastic, and that that was probably my biggest musical instruments. Uh, sorry, musical influence. You can still hear it in some of the albums that I've done or some of the soundtracks that I've done. I mean, uh, I don't begin to pretend to be an innovator i will steal anything going and but i'll change it and try and make it a bit more accessible that's all that's all so when when this all sort of started going crazy and it was like the golden age was was there a lot of was it quite exciting to meet other developers and other people that had started their own studios and stuff yeah we were we're all a bunch of loonies really i mean we were it was there was one guy used to turn up at every festival fair a micro fair he was called um can't even remember the name of the software he was called pete the hat anyway uh beardy hippie guy and all he wanted to do was play his guitar took the masses and that's all he ever did <laughs> he produced some games on the side but then i did the same thing i produced a game called uh pie eyed and the, our hero little pink hero called the pie man um you had to take him from pub to pub in the game and he drank a pint in each in each game, and for every pint he drank, of course, you had less and less keyboard control or joystick control. So <laughs> again, your character on the screen was totally pissed. You know, he was falling off the edge of the screen. You couldn't do anything with it, throwing up. You know, but my real motivation for that was so I could go to the micro fairs and play the music, the the the, um, the soundtrack, because on the back of the tape was the the pie-eyed song, yeah, which had a message in it for little kids, something like uh, getting drunk ain't, ain't clever, it's stupid, blah, 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 keep your head out the loop. And so most of the songs had a little message and a little bit of humor, a bit of smut, because kids love smut. Oh, absolutely. Who doesn't? Uh, yeah. And it was seaside postcard stuff. But then I come from a seaside postcard kind of a place. So what um, what prompted you to do um, Deus Ex Machina, which, which seems like, I mean, to all intents and purposes, it's the most ambitious sort of game that you made at the time. I, I, th- I thought I was fucking awesome Wells, man, you know. 
I thought I could change everything. I was a, a mixture to my own mind of Chaplin, Orson Welles, um, Cecil B. DeMille. I was going to make the first movie, the first talkie, the first cinerama. The f it was going to be the biggest computer game ever. And the, my ambition was, I was an ego mate. I was mad. I was deluded. So I decided to make an interactive movie where the player can um, live their entire life through a computer game. So you start from uh, before sperm. You start with the act of love. And you end up with your own death. And that, because of the limitations of a cassette tape, right, Mm -hmm. which is about, see, it had to be less than an hour. For the limitations of a, an album, it had to be, yeah, about half an hour aside. For my own uh, egomania, I wanted to produce a half-decent rock and roll record or uh, album. It didn't turn out like that because it was a film soundtrack. Today, I mean, the next program I'm going to do is going to be a full-blown uh, Tarantino soundtrack, all going to be blues and, and old rock and roll and stuff. But we might come to that later. But there isn't a lot later because we've been here for about an hour. Uh, but Deus, I wanted people to hear the music. I wanted them to play the first interactive movie ever. I hired whatever voices I could afford. My ambition, again, had no limitation. So I hired my... I, I, I couldn't hire... Frank Zappa, who my, who's my all-time hero, because uh, he died. <laughs> but I would have done. You know, I'm, I've done a lot of work with the Zappas. That's another thing. But we, let's not get into all that. All these mad people. That I, sorry, these beautiful people that I've worked with. Um, we, if you want to find out about that, buy the fucking book, okay? You should, yeah. The book is excellent. You Thank you so much. You can delete the, right, the word fucking. Buy this wonderful book. Uh, on sale now. Cold. I can't remember what it's called, huh? Deus Ex Machina. It is called Deus Ex Machina. The best game you never played in your life. So, I mean, like the celebrity voices as well. Like, is that... So I wanted... That, did anyone I, do that before? Don't think so. Because well, as, as much as you're saying, like, you were mad and you're an egomaniac, that all may well be true. But you were also correct, just perhaps was. 25 years too early. That's... That's it, man. You just said it. I was 25 years ahead of my time, yeah. Which is fine. It gave me a lot of... I spent the last 25 years uh, writing a lot and making music and doing all sorts of stuff. And working with some very fine people and harnessing the internet and all this stuff. But the, at the time, did it feel... Did you feel like you had achieved what you'd set out to do with the game? Like, were you happy with how it, it game good came question. out? Good question. Good question. I was quite happy with the way that the music came out. I was quite happy with getting Doctor Who on it. Ian Jury, another hero of mine, on it. An old music hall comedian called Frankie Howard, who used to scare me, scare me when I was a little kid. He used to be on the radio. I used, to, I used to love the radio. The radio was my blood. And Frankie Howard used to come on these awful uh, so-called comedy programs. And he had this weird delivery 
sort of weirdly mad. And you know, you know all the usual oohs and ahs and stuff that he yeah, did. Yeah, yeah. All that classic stuff. Anyway, anyone will work for money. Don't let them tell you anything else. You wave money at them, and they will beat a path to your door, which, of course, they all did. Some were easy to work with. Some were a delight. But did, but did they realize what they were part of? No, of course not. Of course not. Ian Jury was interesting because Baxter, his lad, was about the right age. He would have been seven or eight. And he was just into computer games. And he sort of played some of the stuff. And Ian thought it was great to subvert children. So we wrote a couple of little things together. One of which has just been released on an album. And the next one will have Ian Jury, me, and... Oh, who's that guy? Who's that that really famous guy? That most famous voice in the world. He's on it as well. And it's, I'm talking about Christopher Lee. Oh, of God, course. God rest his soul. 92 years old, and he was still recording. And we did we did four things together, two of which have been released. Uh, one was a remake of Deus Ex Machina, which I thought the sound on that was pretty good. Well, I say it myself. Oh, no, the, his voiceover on that was was amazing. Yeah, I thought it was good. Yeah, it was uh, really good. The music was obviously music was miles better than, than the original. I, I, I had to play everything myself originally because I had no money. So I just couldn't afford to hire anybody in. So all the mistakes on the first album are mine. Then I worked with, I say I worked with, I hired uh, Christopher Lee uh, for something called Eggbird, which is a silly little game for infants, I mean, literally for three and four year olds, where Chris Lee played a snake. A spectacular failure of a game that was. I think it came out last year and sold about whoa, <laughs> double figures I would think that's <laughs> <laughs> um, Pymania I've kept that under wraps at the moment a remake of that but I have done a record of that with Christopher Lee and some Ian Jury stuff and then I've got one in the can uh, which is something called Thanatos that's a remake of somebody else's game but it might be my sort of my last hurrah. Um, it might be my last attempt at or first attempt at a proper interactive movie uh, on all formats this time because technology lets me do that. So Christopher E yeah. is in the can. He, it's the story of a man, a woman, and a dragon, of course, as they all are. Yep. The man is death, the woman is lust or desire, and you play the dragon. So death, or Thanatos, is Christopher Lee, and I've got a lot of stuff uh, in the can of his, loads. So the soundtrack should be a Lulu for that. I've cast who plays life, or lust, or whatever we want to call her, this life force, I've got a voice for her, but I can't tell you who that is. What a tease. Uh, what a tease. Uh, Tony, because um, she doesn't know and I haven't paid her yet. <laughs> but she will do it. She will do it. And then some good music uh, for the background. 
I'm broke as usual, but um, we've got a long lead in, and I think I might do a, a half decent Kickstarter to it as well. So, well, let's hope so. I mean, this is one of the things I, I feel. Um, I mean, I don't feel bad personally, but like reading the book and hearing about the development of um, Deus Ex Machina and the release, which you know it was a, a critical. Uh, yeah. hits like it was uh, everybody loved it yeah, and yeah, then, yeah, yeah. but nobody bought it because the piracy scene <laughs> on the spectrum was so rampant yeah. and this I is know. something that's come up on the show a lot like everyone i've spoken really? to pretty much everybody kind of everyone i've had on the show so far has been uh, usually at least 30 or, or older and nice. they usually start their, their their early experience of games is always with the the spectrum especially if they're british yeah. Yeah, and sure. all of them have experience of just rampant piracy everybody just had every well, game because they just got handed around we, we, we've been through this as well see when i started then there was no piracy because there weren't any games there was no piracy because you had to write your own stuff or copy it line by line and then the cassette allowed people to to dupe uh self-dupe and make pirate copies which was fine but we didn't know anything about it because it wasn't organized. It started to get organized when the magazines came out and most of the piracy took place outside of UK in the early days. Then it was rife. But by the time, if you're 35, uh, you would have been about five or seven or eight years old by the time piracy hit UK. Perfect timing for you. Mm-hmm. But before that, it didn't really exist. It was in Russia. It was in Italy. It was in Scandinavia. Because we didn't sell our games to any of those places because there was no mechanism to do so. There was no wholesalers or retailers or stuff. You yeah, you'd order. sell sort of direct to you'd sell the customer, direct mail order. Yeah? Sure. And we used to, yeah, the postman would come in with a sack, a sack of mail orders. And we would take cassettes to the post office by the sack it's great um and then i don't know i i used to be editor of a uh, the european computer trade whatever it was called association um i used to go to shows and be the master of ceremonies because i was quite funny back then uh, <laughs> I was a bit of a prick, but I was also quite funny. I'm no longer a bit of a prick, I hope. But I was I was really at myself for years. Uh, but I was good at conferences and stuff, and I could give away prizes and make people laugh. And we started getting overseas delegates turning up. And they would say, oh, yeah, Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, love it, love it. Like, what? You know, where are you from? Oh, Ukraine. All oh, right, okay. I mean, it's easy to laugh at that name. That must have been heartbreaking. Well, yes, no. I didn't didn't know about it. Honestly, I didn't know about it for years. But to get such a a critical, you know, games of the year and stuff, and then just to not have anyone buy it, or at least not in the the figures you'd anticipate kind of thing. I mean, I sold more copies of Deus Ex Machina 2, uh, in the first week than I did for the whole life of, of one, simply because it's done via something 
What's it done via these days? Press of a button, isn't it? And the yeah, money goes into an account. That's it. So it's direct. So we're right back to the, the beginnings. Everything's gone full circle. We're selling direct. I'm selling direct to my audience. But for years in between, for that quarter of a century, that missing quarter of a century, it was all. And it was as soon as the, the business guys sort of moved in. And they weren't gamers. They weren't enthusiasts. They were business. They were. I was once... Uh, there's a guy called Robert Maxwell who ran a newspaper called the Daily Mirror. He, sorry, he owned it. He owned it. And he thought he'd buy his son, Kevin, a computer games company. Good luck. So at the time, we were, I suppose we were number one. So these two guys, very nice guys, came knocking on the door of our office. We had an office then, right? Yeah. I mean, for a real office with desks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, light switches and stuff, the tape duplicator, and a machine for sticking on labels, and a machine for putting them in jiffy bags, and human beings for sticking stamps on. Anyway, this is great. It's great. It's real cottage industry stuff. There's no mechanization or going anywhere else. And the recording studio and the ideas that you alluded to earlier was the pub across the road. We'd come up with the idea of Prince Charles on the toilet or sticking a whoopee cushion under Hitler or dyeing Ronald Reagan, he was president of the United States, dyeing his hair uh, to keep him occupied so he couldn't start a nuclear war. All this sort of <laughs> subversive. And that was, you know, it took a pint to come up with the idea. Either my mate Christian or my the schoolboy that was working for us called Andy would nip across the road. By the time we got back, it was programmed. My chum Robin would do a cartoon for the publicity. I'd write the uh, copy and the adverts, bang. So between opening time and closing time, we had a game. And if you couldn't do that, why were you, you know, you had no right to be in the business. That sounds amazing. That sounds so gratifying and exciting. Yeah, of course it was. It was, it was gratifying, exciting. And we churned out loads. I, I can't remember the number, but I've got it down somewhere. But it must have been, oh, I don't know, 70, 80 games in the days we didn't do a game we did something else we made some music or did a radio program i had a company that made maps for tourists so we used to go to holiday resorts and make maps for tourists and so the did same you thing. sell up then so you you got it in 85 was it was that i did after sell up. The... I, I i i um i got so pissed off when deus didn't sell i couldn't understand why because everyone said it was you know pretty good uh, it won Game of the Year and got awards and all that sort of stuff, but no fucker bought it. And then I, I, I'd made two huge mistakes. One was pricing it completely wrong. I priced it at 15 quid. I couldn't even tell you what that was in today's money, but it was much too much. And every other game around was like a fiver. I thought they were getting a movie, they were getting a full-blown album, rock album. They were getting uh, this interactive thing. And it was a first. And it cost me, I tried to get my money back because I'd spent everything on it, you know? Yeah, you've got all these amazing sort of voice actors oh, yeah. and musicians. I spent a lot. Stuff. So I never made a penny out of computer games. I spent it all on Data Sex Machine. <laughs> and I thought, sod this, you know? And so did you I'm sell all... it to Robert Maxwell? No, no, no. I told them to get stuffed. Um, <laughs> Robert Maxwell, he was the guy who 
yeah, like tax crook. evaded and, it's a crook. and yeah, he was a crook. Fell off his yacht. That's it. His son was the guy who brought Tetris over to Britain. He brought Tetris to the world, and he was involved with some skullduggery. But I will let people do their own research into that. But one of the um, things, no, like, no, I, I, I just hated the whole big business stuff. Everyone was being bought up. It all went mainstream. Uh, the Yanks moved in, and it wasn't what I'd joined up for, if you like. It wasn't what I'd started out as. And um, but one of the most amazing things from like from reading the book, <laughs> I mean, I've, I've already said like you were clearly way ahead of your time, but like it's so there was so much that that you did. Um, within the company that you know 15 years later would be considered oh man this is finally games can do this and games are really showing their potential and then you realize that oh, this has already been done like yeah. years and but years ago but like without the, I, the recognition it deserves I don't I really don't think that you got I the can, recognition I can, you deserve. I can only remind you that I didn't know what I was doing so I didn't really know it was first I didn't know it couldn't be done Every time I asked, we had this, we won this schoolboy in a, a government lottery. It was called the Youth Opportunity you Scheme. You won a schoolboy? Yeah, yeah. We, the government would pay us, I can't remember what it was. It was something like seven pounds a week. Um, I can't remember how much. Let's say it was seven pounds a week. Could have been ten. And you paid, it was like an apprenticeship thing. Okay, okay. And we, we won this, I had to pick a, you know, pick a kid. Because <laughs> he said he could program. And I was, he was programming I could program in something called BASIC and something called ALGOL and something called FORTRAN. I understood that because it was like a language. Yeah. But this kid was programming in telepathy, <laughs> you know, in osmosis. He would write out a stream of numbers in something called machine code. And I didn't, and I hadn't got a clue what was going on by then. I, I just gave up programming myself. And... He was too young to drink, so we sent him back from the pub, um, and uh, <laughs> we come back, and this game was done, you know, <laughs> and all I could see was a string of numbers, and oh, Jesus, you know, wonderful, wonderful. His name is Andrew Stagg, and I work with him to this day. That is amazing. He is a grandfather now, a bald grandfather, God bless him, <laughs> and he was this kid in 16 or 17 um, that you won. We won. He programmed Deus Ex Machina for me. And he kept saying, this can't be done. Can't do it. I said, why not? He said, it's never been done. I said, and? You know, well, try this, try that. I didn't know anything about programming, but I knew about thinking. You know, I, I, I used to know this guy called Edward de Bono, who helped me in some legal stuff. And he came up with a book and a phrase in the English lexicon called lateral thinking what and he taught me <laughs> the lateral man who invented lateral yeah, thinking he taught me lateral thinking so andy would say it can't be done and i said well because we worked out why it couldn't be done and the only reason was because nobody had done it that's all so to try and get we were playing with a 48k machine right and i needed i wanted to have <laughs> right now hear this <laughs> If you look at the packaging of Deus Ex Machina, you'll see it's in um, a second-hand video box. You could get four cassettes into that second-hand video box, right? That means you had eight sides to play with. I was talked out of it. 
you, you've got no idea how ambitious Deus Ex Machina was originally and how much was cut out. I ended up with one computer program cassette and one audio cassette to sync. That's the first thing. Sync the audio with the game. Easy. You just count it down, hold your finger over the pause button of the cassette recorder, and then let go. That's it. Perfect. No, nobody had done it before. Nobody's done it since because they're not stupid enough. But the public, the players, they cotton on straight away. There's no problem. The pirates, and that's one of the problems, the pirates didn't usually pirate the audio. They just pirated the game. So there's all these Russians and Greeks and Scandinavians and Indians. Um, I'll tell you about the Indians in a minute. Playing Deus Ex Machina, no audio, thinking, what the fuck is this? <laughs> What's this sperm doing on screen? <laughs> yes, yeah, so none of the voiceover, none of the kind of yeah. the, the narrative. Has that old through? guy got a dick? <laughs> He's got a pair of tits now. What's going on? <laughs> you know, because the whole thing is it's just every. You've got to be naked. If you're not naked, then you, and you've got to be, can't be any color. So you, you can't play a man or a woman. You've got to play both. And I can't, I couldn't. The original game, you could specify what color you were, what, what sex you were. Um, it went on for hours and hours and hours. I mean, it was a real epic. And I, I had to cut loads of stuff. I, I brought it back for Deus Ex Machina or Machina 2. And there are sequences in that, all the babyhood stuff's in there, all the school stuff's in there. Uh, in effect, it's a huge conceit. It's my own life. Uh, as I say, I was brought up in rubble. Um, my family was uh, refugees from the Nazis. Uh, I am a lefty. I went to a public school, which was like going to Auschwitz, you know. In fact, my school was built the same year as Auschwitz, allegedly. We had to wear boaters. This is from a kid, you know, who grew up in this two up, two down with no toilet. Uh, I used to get beaten up just walking home from school just for being a posh kid. And I am a posh kid now. I, I changed my accent. I know how to, you know, handle myself in company. And to all intents and purposes. Uh, but you had to wear a boater. I had to wear a boater, yeah. But I know who I am. I have a smarter younger sister. She lives in Primrose Hill, you know. She knows who she is, really. She lives, you know, there's Robert Plant and all these people around her. Hey, it's Jamie Oliver. Hey, it's Alan Bennett. Hey, great. But she knows who she is and I know who I am. And I certainly wasn't going to sell out to, you know, a bunch of fucking corporates what I'd built up. So I sold it to um, the guy who played the pie man, uh, who was a very nice chap. And I sold it to him for a coin he had in his pocket at the time, which was a tenpenny piece. And I came out of automata, automata with ten pence, which I still have. Stuck on the wall in front of me here. Oh, amazing. It is amazing, yeah. That and is that's, wonderful. It, it, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm very pleased I did it. I could have sold out for a few bob, or as you would say now, a few quid. Um, and I'm very glad I didn't, because it would have probably tarnished everything, and I wouldn't have come back. 
Yeah, so this is a, a thing I want to talk about. And now, there, there is this sort of gap of 25 years. Yeah. And I, I really would sincerely encourage people to, to get the book because it's so many extraordinary stories and run-ins with, like, Prince and Frank Zappa and all this amazing stuff. And Eminem, <laughs> bizarrely. Yeah. Um, but we won't go into that. Uh, some of this tr- stuff is even true, folks. Absolutely. But what I do want to, what I was wondering is during this period when you kind of, you weren't, you were doing a lot of internet stuff, but you weren't making games. W- were you still interested in them? Did you still play any games? No, no, no. You had no interest no, at all? No interest whatsoever. I had no interest in playing games when I was making games, to be quite <laughs> honest. Unlike all your other guests, I've played very, very few games, video games in my life. I haven't really played my own. Once they were done, they were done. That was it, you know. But not even like, perhaps not even not playing necessarily, but just keeping track and following the industry and seeing what people were doing, you know. I had to because I write some magazine columns. I write a magazine column in a magazine called uh, Computer Shopper. And when I'm, I write under a lot of pseudonyms. When I was a record reviewer for the BBC, I was called Doreen Hindley. Right. And when I, I've, I've been loads of people, just I just like taking the piss, I think. Anyway, my name when I write is sometimes it's Zygote. And Zygote is the first union of a sperm and an egg. It's the first cell. Yeah. Okay. It's also, um, I used to have a machine called an Amstrad PCW that came with something called LocoScript. And it had a built-in spell checker. And the last word was zygote. So the conceit is I had the last word once a month in Computer Shopper. (laughs) And I have done for the past 30, I can't even tell you, 35 years, 33 years? I can't tell you. Once a month as zygote, I take the piss out of the computing industry. And then I write other magazine columns sometimes under my own name sometimes under other pseudonyms so to answer your question in a very long-winded way i do need to keep my finger on the pulse of what's going on um but i don't really get involved with a lot of the hardware the software or the games there there aren't enough hours in the day i've got so much on you know so much to do oh yeah especially nay i mean because like certainly for the past 10 years or so we're back in back in the kind of renaissance of indie development yeah. to the point yeah. where you know it is much Fabulous. like it was in the early 80s where it's back and forth direct to the yeah. consumer but yeah. and and that is, that is wonderful but also it, 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 I, I can't tell you how wonderful it is seeing a new generation of mavericks independents kids loonies really having successes that but 99.9 percent will have total failure yeah, the, no. this is the the problem. Is the it's not the problem necessarily, but because it's much easier to not easier to do, but certainly the the barrier for entry is lower. Certainly, there's just so much. Like I'm I'm certain, and this is something that, that bothers me a little bit. I'm certain that there's absolutely amazing, not just games, but albums and films that are being made I'm sure now, you're right. that I'm I'm never gonna see that aren't even gonna hit my peripheral vision. I'm sure you're I feel right. That's terrible. I'm sure you're right. And that, I, I agree. I think that's terrible. My privilege was um, to be there at the beginning and without much competition 
uh, most people got to see most stuff yeah. that I did. I mean, I think everyone probably got to see it who was around in certainly the late 70s, the early 80s. Uh, if not by the originals, then by piracy. And that's fine by me. Uh, then a whole new, probably two generations has grown up since. Haven't got a clue what I did, who I am, and why should they? It's like talking to people about, I don't know, um, I, I'm trying to think of a, an equivalent um, in, in movies, say. It would be like uh, the early, you know, like Hal Ashby or something. Well, no, 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 before that even. Before, before that, that, yeah, that's way before um, that. Yeah. Um, what I was going to actually get this yes. kind of this is a nice way of, of, of wrapping up, I suppose. Is you know we were just talking about the the way that indie development has kind of been reborn over the past ten years with with the internet. I think is that was that what kind of brought you back in to you know work on the the, the remake and and the sequel of uh, no, the, no, it wasn't. Um, what brought me back in was a guy called um, Mario. You were, uh, this is absolutely true. Mario Valenti. Today is his birthday, of all things. Oh, lovely. And he was a student when Deus Ex Machina came out in 84 in Lisbon. And it started him off in business. He was a pirate. He pirated my game and took it to number one in Spain and Portugal and South America, and he made a lot of money. Uh, I didn't know, of course. And then over the years, I was asked very often if I'd come back by people and remake games or make new games or go into collaboration. I didn't stop making games, to be quite honest. I did make a few, but not under my own name. And I won't tell you what they are. Oh, that's, because that's interesting. Break, that would break embargoes, and I wouldn't do that. But not, not important ones or big ones. A couple that people have liked, which was nice. And the rules were very simple. Pay me up front and don't use my name. Okay? Um, this particular time, I've been asked to make a remake of Deus lots and lots of times. Some people even sent me copies of their remakes, which were bloody awful crap. It was <laughs> terrible. I just didn't understand what, was, what the whole idea was. Anyway, the, Mario... He um, sent me a proposal and said, uh, I want to make atonement for you starting me off in my business career, uh, for me pirating your games all those years ago. I would like to remake Deus Ex Machina. Do what you like. I'll pay you X up front and I'll give you Y percentage royalties. What a gesture. And I said, come and see me. So he flew in. We met. <laughs> we met in a very interesting place where Clint Eastwood was sitting over in the corner. Astounding, absolutely astounding meeting. Where, where, where was this? It was in London. It was in London, and Eastwood was making some film or doing some. Anyway, yeah, it was a very discreet place that we met, and he was sitting. Where, where when you go to this place, the uh, it's a pub basically, but this guy comes up and he puts like a little screen around you. It's not until you stand up, you see who else is in the room. Hmm. Uh, it's not my style, but we're talking to this sort of European-type businessman. Okay. Um, and what happened? Oh, yeah. I, I liked him, and he was so honest, and it was a great approach anyway, I thought, saying, hello, I'm a, I, I ruined your career <laughs> years ago. <laughs> so I agreed. 
uh, then and there we signed then and there. Um, then the Portuguese economy went tits up, if you remember. I can't remember what year it was, but it was... Yeah, it was a couple of years after the kind of big crash. Eight, wasn't it? Yeah. The big crash 2000, was 2008. 2008. I think Portugal was maybe a year or two later, like one of the aftershocks exactly so. kind of thing. Exactly so. So it all went into hiatus. Meantime, I'd, I didn't care about the royalty by then. I'd got my advance. So I spent it. <laughs> I spent my <laughs> entire advance <laughs> on some decent music, um, on, yeah, on Christopher Lee, on uh, a guy called Joachim de Almeida, a great act, Portuguese actor. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. He, he's, he's been in loads of stuff. Oh, loads of stuff, the West Wing and so He's a r- real nice guy. Got on with him really well, you see. Because when you get to this age, you, you only work with people you like. Okay? You, you don't bother with anybody yeah. else. Unfortunately, for my business career, bank balance and lack of pension, I've always been like that. I've never <laughs> worked with people I like. Uh, so thanks to Mario. Yeah. It was Mario who broke through. And then when Deus eventually came out after the, the financial hiatus, uh, a bit of Kickstarter, uh, a bit of luck. And it did okay, actually. It did okay. In fact, it's still out there as far as I know. Yeah, no, uh, it is. It's. As an app, I think, now. So, yeah, we're doing all right. Um, I think I get modest royalties even now, you know. But it was never about that. I had a, I had an absolutely amazing time redoing it. Yeah, that real. must have been really exciting. All like, those lost sequences are back. They're all back, the lost sequences. Some are almost identical. And some uh, you just wouldn't recognize. You know, there's loads of stuff hidden. Stuff, again, I couldn't afford to do it in terms of the time or the memory. Uh, and it's really pretty as well, the, the new version. It is pretty. It's pretty, but it's a remake. Uh, yeah. Thanatos is, I want to do it first-person perspective, through the eye of the dragon. So what you're going to see is shadows and the flame of the dragon. I want the evil side of stuff. Thanatos. Death. Oh, not death, actually. It's more like sleep or resignation. I want him to be like a shadowy presence. And I want Io, who's the life force. I want her to be like a silvery, shimmering presence. So graphically, it's going to be bizarre. Um, loads it's like loads some sort of, of like German expressionist kind of film or something. Oh, wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't that be wonderful? I would have loved to have made those black and white cut-out silhouette things. What was her name? Not Raffenstahl. The other one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I can't think love, of it, love it, love it, love it. Yeah, I'd like to do that. Limbo was great. You know Limbo? Yeah, 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 totally. Oh, so, so, right. Has this kind of, have you started great looking start. at games again now because you're yeah. obviously back into it? Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, th- I, was, I, was, I don't know whether to go simple or do a full 4D rolling landscape, you know, a whole planet. I just don't know. And is this what you're kind of working on currently, yeah? I'm not really working on it. Um, I'm waiting. I've got a couple of serious bits of software to get out, a couple of utilities. Uh, one is all about, it's going to be called Last Orders, and it's about getting ready to die in terms of how long I've got to live. So it's an algorithm for that. What am I worth? So it's a huge inventory. And um, what happens after I snuff it down to, I don't know, do I get shot up in the air by a rocket or buried? I don't know. So last orders is a utility for everyone on the planet. 
work out what you want now before it happens because when it happens it'll bite you in the ass yeah that, i mean other, a lot of this stuff on. is it fits in with the the kind of work you were doing in the kind of the, the wilderness years as you called yeah, them. yeah there's yeah, a yeah. lot of that kind of work of that doesn't stop figuring out your online identity and all that sort of stuff i've got to live um so the writing doesn't really pay a lot music pays nothing the games pay very little uh but what a great mixture oh absolutely um well i'm going to leave you go and walk your dog now Mel. <laughs> the dog. Yeah. that was a, that was a terrific <laughs> chat honestly thanks so much for for coming on I, um was that okay with you are you happy is there anything great that pleasure. we've missed i'm always happy uh, uh happy cutting out the obscenities and oh no the, the obscenities will all stay <laughs> I may I may cut a few pauses here and there, but the obscenities <laughs> absolutely have to stay. They're integral. Oh, you bastard! <laughs> a pleasure. Uh, yeah, thanks Thank very for... much, Mel. I'll speak Thank to you soon. Okay. Many thanks. Bye bye. You may control the progress of this accident on my behalf, and with my permission, and lead it up the telepath. Watch your soul in molten spirals, which must not stop spinning. Reach out and touch them. I keep the watch. I see it all. I tap the phone. I file a number. I take your truth, I give the lie, I steal information, cover the land with signal and cable. I am machine, I am machine, I am machine. I have always been In the beginning was the word And the word was no I, I refuse I refuse to obey Obey my program